So a uh, question, uh, audience participation time. How many of you enjoy playing board games? Can I see your hands? Okay, add to that card games, anybody? Card games? Okay. This past winter, I found myself locked in a fierce, fierce competition of crazy eights. All right. It was, a, it was a grandpa date, and I was with my third grade grandson, headed to Starbucks a couple miles from our place, and uh, got a hot chocolate and sat down to play Crazy Eights together. Now, on the way in, I saw an area pastor. He was kind of like in a, a conversation, in an appointment, but, you know, you get eye contact, you know, and just kind of acknowledge each other. Then we go to our table, you know, hot chocolate, Crazy Eights. And during his appointment and after his appointment, he was just kind of watching us. And later that day, I got a text from him. And I can't give you the exact wording of the text, but the sense of the text was, I think I like you more now. <laughs> you know, because it, it's, it's one thing to see a person on a platform, in front of a crowd, with a microphone, delivering a sermon. And it was, it was just a different side, seeing someone in a coffee shop, in the presence of your grandchild, drinking hot chocolate and playing Crazy Eights. Because there's a public side, and then there's a kind of a private side. And so let's just acknowledge something together, that sometimes you can learn something about a person by watching that person interact with other people. And this is the sense, the driving force behind this series, Encounters with Jesus. Uh, there were several occasions where Jesus is addressing the crowd or with all 12 of his disciples, but this series focuses on some one on one interactions that Jesus had. And uh, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 of these in our Bible, uh, around in the neighborhood, like 40 one on one interactions that Jesus had. And the interaction we're gonna focus on today and explore today and absorb today, we know where it happened and we know where Jesus was going, where he's on his way to when this encounter with Jesus takes place. And so uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, I'd love you to find a Luke chapter 17, and down around verse 11, we find this where he's going and where he is. It says, now uh, on his way to, on his way where? On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee, where he's headed to and where he is. Now, Jerusalem, this is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is not the middle of Jesus' ministry. This is nearing the end of Jesus' ministry. He's heading to Jerusalem, and he's going to die there. He's heading to Jerusalem, and he knows that he is going to die there. Jesus has a significant fan base, but his group of enemies is just growing and growing. This is a season in Jesus' ministry where there's just massive conflict over who he is and what he does. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die there. That's where he's headed. But where is he? It says he's on the border between, and two locations were there. What were they? Between, was it Galilee and Samaria, or Samaria and Galilee? Uh, there's a map, map here. It shows kind of like these three districts of what we would call Israel back in the first century. In the north is Galilee. That's where the epicenter of Jesus' ministry, around the Sea of Galilee. In the south, that's the region of Judea, and that red dot there shows where the city of Jerusalem is. So he's up north in Galilee. He's heading south toward Jerusalem, and the Samaritans lived in the middle. And so it's kind of like Jews lived in Galilee, Jews lived in Judea. If you lived in that middle section, you were Samaritans. And the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans returned the favor. 
while they were neighbors, they were not neighborly. These people did not care for each other. So uh, this will occur a handful of times as you read through the stories of Jesus. Jesus told a story about a guy that's beaten up by the side of the road, and the good Samaritan stops and helps this guy out. The kicker with that story is that's the last person that you would expect to stop and help out a Jew that had been beaten up and left for dead beside the road. And so it's a Samaritan that helps him out. Uh, Another story, Jesus is sitting down at a well, and he's having a conversation with a woman at the well. She is a Samaritan. Jesus' disciples come back from town, and they are stunned that Jesus is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And so it's kind of factors into that story as well. And just here where it says, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. He's on the border between Galilee and Samaria. Don't be surprised if this Samaritan thing doesn't show up later in our story. Now, it's going to end up being a one-on-one encounter with Jesus, but it starts out with an encounter with 10 guys. Listen, you can learn a lot about a person by watching them interact with other people. But today, as we explore and absorb this story together, we not only learn something about Jesus, we also get a glimpse at what Jesus wants from us. We get a better idea of the work that he wants to do in us. And so we learn what he values, what he desires, what he wants to call out of us. So we not just learn about him, we learn about what it means to connect with him and to value what he values and to want what he wants. So as we absorb this story together, there are possibly a couple different points where you can pinpoint growth areas and some things to carry with you into your week. This encounter I've broken down into four separate parts. And part one, part one, we're just calling outsiders. Part one, we're just calling outsiders. Now, uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 12, we find this. As he was going, as Jesus was going into a village, 10 men who had what? Who had leprosy met him. These guys are outsiders. Now, the term, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of leprosy. You might think of a disease that is eating away at your skin and you have to live in a leper colony. The word leprosy, as it's used in our Bible, was an umbrella statement covering any number of skin ailments and skin diseases. It might be a severe rash. It might be a a boil on your neck. But, But when you came up with a severe skin ailment or a skin disease, one of the first things you had to do was you had to leave town. You had to leave your family. You had to leave the presence of your three-year-old daughter, and every day you get home from the field, she launches herself into your arms. You have to leave her. You have to leave your friends. You have to leave your neighborhood. You are effectively removed from society. You are now an outsider looking in. Jesus is walking into a village. These guys are not in the village. They're at a distance. Ten lepers, ten outsiders on the outside looking in. Question, have you, any season in your life where you kind of felt like an outsider? Any set of relationships now where you kind of feel like you're kind of on the outside looking in? It's common. It's very common, you know, almost universal. Three friends, two babies. 
went to college together, buddied up in college, and then married within a year or two of each other. Two of the three now have children. They still get together, but when the threesome meets, when the three of them get together, there are now two car seats. And two of them, their world is now a world of car seats, baby formula, pediatricians, and the other one's just kind of sitting there and goes, that's that's your world. That's, that's not my world. No animosity, no desire to include, but suddenly you find yourself kind of on the outside of the circle looking in. You know what this is like, right? It, it is not uncommon for someone who was recently widowed or divorced, where you used to do something as couples, and perhaps the social organizer of the two is now gone. And the more introverted homebody remains. And again, perhaps there's no intent to exclude, but you kind of feel on the outside looking in. Happens when you move. New town, new school. I remember one specific time, if, if, if I had to answer the question, if you ever felt like an outsider, this would probably be the most profound time in my life. Now, I've talked about this before a number of times over the years, but realize there's always new, new people joining the Ada Bible Church family, so I, I won't mention this from time to time. Uh, as a seventh grader, my mom was killed in an automobile accident. My father had five children, ages 13, 12, 9, 4, and two-month-old baby, and months after my mom's death, my dad relocated us from Blackfoot, Idaho, to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Blackfoot, Idaho, right next door to the Fort Hall Indian Reservation, not to Grand Rapids, but to East Grand Rapids. I would not have had a bigger culture shock if we had moved to Zimbabwe. And it was just a sense of feeling socially out, socially awkward, socially illiterate. Now, just to make a case here, trust me, I could have been socially awkward anywhere as an eighth grader. I think I was socially awkward in Idaho, but it was something about the East Grand Rapids environment that kind of amplified the outsider-ness. And so just that question, you ever feel like you're on the outside looking at, I go, man, transition from seventh grade to eighth grade, huge. Now, while most of us have tasted this sense of being on the outside looking in, these 10 people with skin diseases, what's called leprosy, they were experiencing it in the extreme. You had to live outside of town, away from your family, away from your friends, away from your neighborhood, away from your village, away from community life. They are outsiders. Now question, why did you have to leave town? Why did you have to leave town? And the first thing that comes to mind is, well, maybe what you had was contagious, and they wanted to limit something medically spreading from one person to another. Yeah, not so much. The reason that you had to leave town was because when you had this skin disease, you were declared ritually, ceremonially unclean, and everybody that you came in physical contact with was then ceremonially unclean. Unclean. Well, if you have the skin disease and you see someone coming down the road, you have to yell something to them to warn them. You didn't yell unhealthy. You didn't yell unwell. You yelled unclean because you were ceremonially unclean. So this is so strange for our culture. But let me take you back to their world for a minute with just two words. And the two words are just clean and unclean. 
ceremonially clean and then ceremonially unclean. Well, what, Jeff, what could make you ceremonially unclean? One thing that could make you ceremonially unclean was burying a loved one, burying a family member, helping to bury a neighbor that passed away. Uh, back in the laws of our Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, you, you find this in Numbers chapter 19. It says, whoever touches a human corpse will be, will be what? Unclean for a week, for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day and then go through a second ceremonial purification process on the seventh day, and then they will be what? And then they will be clean. The idea here is that you couldn't carry a loved one to a grave, put them in the grave, and then go have dinner with friends. You were marked as unclean. And if they came in contact with you, then they were unclean by contact, by association. So go through this ceremony washing process on day three, ceremony washing process on day seven. Now you can go to your friend's house for dinner and be fully engaged in uh, community life. But you were unclean by burying a family member or a friend. Anything else? Yes, you were unclean by coming in contact with someone with a skin disease who was declared leprous. If you had leprosy, you were like a walking corpse. Anybody that comes in contact with you is now declared unclean. This is why you had to leave town to avoid human contact. To be cured from leprosy, to have your skin affliction go away, was like coming back to life. It was like being resurrected from the dead. You could re-enter society as someone who was clean. And rumors are spreading. Rumors about Jesus, some of them are bad and some of them are good, but one of the rumors is that Jesus healed people. In fact, we're looking at Luke chapter 17. Back in Luke chapter five, there's a story of a person with a skin disease, leprosy, comes up, crashes at Jesus' feet, says, if you're willing, you can make me well. And Jesus reached out and touched the guy. And you read, immediately the skin disease left him. You think if you were a leper living in that region that that story would capture your attention? Jesus touches the guy, and instead of the guy's uncleanness getting transferred to Jesus, Jesus' wholeness gets transferred to the guy with the skin disease. Uncleanness doesn't get transferred, cleanness gets transferred. And these 10 outsiders, they hear that Jesus is heading their way and now they see him and now they start yelling. Part two of the story is crying out. It said they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. It is a choir of the desperate. <laughs> they start yelling together. This is from a distance. I don't know how far. I don't know this was like from across the street. I don't know whether this was the width of a soccer field, a couple hundred feet. Maybe they're yelling not simply because of the distance. Maybe they're yelling because of the desperation. Jesus, Master. Jesus, master, have mercy on us, have pity on us. 
what do they want? Well, I think it'd be nice if this rash went away. What do they want? They want to get their lives back. (laughs) Back to town, back to village life, back to their kids, back to work. They want their lives back, and they yell, Jesus, have mercy on us. Have pity on us. The word pity there means to have compassion or to have mercy. So I would like to acquaint you with one of the shortest possible prayers. It's three words that you may need to draw upon in an hour when you are heartbroken or in your greatest need. And it's just the three words, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Can you whisper it with me? Ready? Lord, have mercy. When your heart is broken, if you feel abandoned, betrayed, deserted, your heart's messed up, you don't even know what to pray or how to pray, there's three words for you. Just, Lord, have mercy. Just, Lord, have mercy. You get news about somebody else, family that you're connected to, cancer's discovered, it's stage four, it doesn't look good, they're going to try some protocols. You know the spouse, you know the ages of the kids, and something in your heart just goes, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This is also an incredible three-word prayer. When you are deeply disappointed in yourself. When you said something, you did something, I can't believe I did that. Lord, have mercy. Uh, This is Luke chapter 17, this story with the 10 lepers. Luke chapter 18, I mean, it's one page away. Jesus tells a story about a couple guys that go to the temple area to pray, and one of them is a tax collector. Just looking in the mirror, This is a guy that perceives himself as a dirtbag. He's probably ripped some people off. And it says he goes to the temple. He wouldn't even look up to the sky to pray. It's like he's just hanging his head. I want you to see his prayer. His prayer was just, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's his prayer. God, have mercy. God, have mercy on me. I've traveled so far from home. I am so lost. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What is beautiful and refreshing about this is that on our hour of failure, it seems like we can begin a conversation by just bringing our messed up self. (laughs) Just bring your messed up self. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So these guys are yelling, 10 of them. They're yelling at Jesus from a distance. Was a master, Jesus, have pity on us. Lord, have mercy. And Jesus looks back. Now, I think he's probably going to heal him. Bummer of a story if he doesn't. I think he's probably going to heal him. And I know how he's going to heal him. Because just 12 chapters before, there's a guy with leprosy, falls at Jesus' feet. Jesus comes up, lays hands on him, and instantly the leprosy left. That's what he's going to do. That's not what he does. They yell at Jesus, and Jesus yells back. Well, he talks back. Verse 14, it says, when he saw them, he said, go, show yourself to the priest. Go, show yourself to the priest. One guy, he lays hands on them. He gives different instructions. Jesus did custom work. It's not cookie cutter. It's one, not one size fits all. He laid hands on the guy in chapter 5 here. He just said, now go show yourself to the priest. Now, what's up with that? 
if you had a skin disease and you wanted to fully re-enter society, there were steps. Step number one, the skin disease had to go away. Step number two, you would go show yourself to a, to a priest. The priest wouldn't cure you. The priest would just diagnose. He would have to certify. The priest would have to notarize that this skin infection was now gone. That's step two. Step three, you then had to tr truck down to the temple in Jerusalem and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise to God. And then you could run back to your family and your kids and your work and your village. First it goes away, then the priest notarizes it, then you offer sacrifices, then you're reintegrated into society. And Jesus jumps to step two, and he says, go show yourself to the priest. The problem is these guys still have their skin infections. And it is while they are on their way that they are healed of these skin infections, which I find really, really interesting. Second half of verse 14, it says, and as they, as they went... They were what? They were cleansed. Now, it's an interesting word because you said they were healed, which is kind of a synonym. But as they went, they were made clean because the issue here is not just sick and healthy. The issue here is clean and unclean. As they went, they were cleansed. I don't know how this went down, but I just got to tell you, I would have loved to have stand there beside the road as these 10 guys were walking along. And all of a sudden, one guy looks over and does a double tech. He says, dude, your hand. Look at your arm. It's gone. And a guy pulls down a face mask and says, is my face better? It is. And 10 of them realize that they are simultaneously healed from this illness, the illnesses that they had. Now, back to that verse where it just says, as they went, they were cleansed. I think, there, I think there's just a little nugget there that I just want to point out. As they went, they were healed. As they went, they were healed. My friends, sometimes God will meet you in the going. Sometimes the voice of our Lord to us is, I need you to get moving. Get up, get out the door, and get moving, and I will meet you as you go. As they went, they were healed. I think this is important for those of us who have a personality type where we won't take step one until we know what steps two through seven are with certainty. And often I think our Lord would say, listen, just get moving, just get moving. I will meet you in the going. I think this is important for those of us that are confused and we feel powerless. And our Lord would just whisper, I need you to get up. I need you to get out the door. I need you to start moving. Continue to move toward a very complicated situation where you're kind of unsure about what is next. Trust that I will meet you along the way. As they went, they were healed. Sometimes I believe God delights to meet us in the going. I don't think that's the point of the story. I think it is very interesting. Well, what is the point of the story? major point of the story is part three. Part three of the story is Thanksgiving. Part three of the story is Thanksgiving. Now, check this out with me, verse 15 and 16. It says, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice, which is interesting. It said they yelled for Jesus to have mercy, pity, in a loud voice. Now he praises God in a loud voice. It says he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked Jesus, and he was a... He was a Samaritan, which means that he was an outsider outsider. 
Outsider first, because he was from the wrong ethnic group. Outsider number two, because he had this skin infection. Uh, this guy was doubly disenfranchised. And this guy that came back was a Samaritan. One guy comes back. And I don't know how this went down, but the guy comes, crashes at Jesus' feet, and just says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I wonder if Jesus looked up down the road to kind of like go, is it, is it just you? Like, is it just you? And Jesus asks. I think, I think Jesus is shocked. I think Jesus is stunned. Not that one guy came back, but that nine guys didn't come back. And he throws down three very penetrating questions. It says, Jesus asked, question number one, were not all ten cleansed? Was it just you? Or like, did the skin infection leave all ten of you? And say, no, it's, all ten of us became clean. We're not all ten cleansed? Question number two, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? And I know the answer to that question. Where are the other nine? Are you kidding me? They're heading off to find the priest to get certified and documented that the skin disease is gone so that they can then run down to Jerusalem and do the ritual sacrifices there of Thanksgiving and then go be with their families again and their communities again and their work again. Where are the other nine? I know where the other nine are. They're off doing their business. They're getting, they're getting their lives back. Question number three, has no one returned to give praise to God except this? Except this outsider, except this foreigner, except this guy who was doubly disenfranchised. An outsider, outsider, has only one returned to give praise to God. Now, I would like to make a distinction that personally, personally, I think it's worth the price of admission today. Uh, and the distinction is between two words. The distinction is between gratitude and thanksgiving. These are not the same. Gratitude is something I feel. Thanksgiving is something I offer. Gratitude, I can be grateful for something. Thanksgiving, I'm not simply grateful for something, I'm thankful to someone. You can be grateful without being thankful. You can be grateful for without being thankful to. Thankfulness, thanksgiving, is acknowledging the giver that is behind the gift. Thanksgiving is acknowledging the giver that is behind the gift. And Thanksgiving requires a detour. You got to stop what you're doing. You got to pause. You got to quiet yourself for a moment and offer thanks. Now, these nine guys running off to the priest, getting the deal done in Jerusalem, going to be with their families. If you stopped any one of them, 
and you said, are you grateful? I think it would be absolutely. And if you drilled deeper and you went, grateful for what? I'm grateful that I'm going to be sleeping in my own bed three nights from now. I'm grateful that I can be around my neighbors, even the one I don't care for. I am grateful that I'm with my family again. I'm grateful that people will no longer be treating me like, well, like a leper. <laughs> I'm grateful. I'm grateful. But they did not return. They did not return to give thanks. And so what this deal about Thanksgiving requires a detour, it requires a pause. Just remember this. Thanksgiving acknowledges that there is a giver behind the gift. So a young woman driving her car, heading home from work, at the end of the day, it ended very, very well. Because she was pulled aside by the owner, manager, who gave some additional responsibilities that she desires. And there is a pay bump with those additional responsibilities. This is going to provide some incredible financial margin or just a cost of living increase that she didn't see coming. And so there's this moment of gratitude. I am grateful that I now have this financial margin. But what if there's Thanksgiving? I mean, what if there's this moment where you actually pull the car into a parking lot and you stop there for a second behind the steering wheel and just go, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I acknowledge that there is a giver behind the gift. I know where my stuff comes from. And a moment of gratitude turns into a moment of thanksgiving. Because you can be grateful for it without being thankful to. Dude's driving in his car. Phone rings. He goes, yeah. First words he hears. Nobody's hurt. <laughs> Interesting way to begin a conversation. Nobody's hurt. Fender bender on 28th Street, cars being towed to the shop, little accident, nobody's hurt. Grateful. Pull into a parking lot and just pause. A little bit faster, hit more toward the front of the car, the back of the car. This whole weekend could have been spent holding vigil outside an intensive care unit in a hospital. This often goes in a different direction. And just this moment of thank you, thank you. Thankfulness acknowledges the giver behind the gift. Sometimes you just privately, like behind your steering wheel. Other times, I think this needs to be done as a family. And I don't know how your family works and how your family connects, but I don't know, you're, you're together for a, a cookout or a graduation open house or... Uh, Fourth of July or something like that, and just someone calling a timeout and say, hey, uh, please indulge me. I just need two minutes. I just need two minutes. And I know that we're not all necessarily on, all on the same page uh, spiritually, but I just need to give praise to God and thanks to Jesus for. For what? The successful open heart surgery? That the cancer is in remission? That the adoption is finalized? That a season of unemployment has ended with meaningful employment. I just need to stop. I, need to, I just want to praise God and thank Jesus for what we've experienced. Sometimes it's with family. Sometimes it should be with your spiritual family. Meaning not biological family, but three or four, five close sisters, brothers, where you just go, this weekend we celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary and two years ago, nobody around this kitchen island thought we were going to make it to 15 years. And quite frankly, we didn't know that we are going to make it to 15 years. 
And we're still growing and we're still learning and we still have really dicey days, but we just want to praise God and thank Jesus for the growth that we've had so far. And this is done in the company of friends. Praise God, thank Jesus. It acknowledges that there's a giver behind the gift. It's a little gathering with some snacks where someone says, this day, this very day, I celebrate one year of sobriety. I made it to year one. I just want to praise God and thank Jesus. And this is done in the company of some close friends. We can be thankful for. Excuse me, we can be grateful for without being thankful to. Thankfulness acknowledges the giver behind the gift. One guy comes, crashes at Jesus' feet, and just says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I think all of them were grateful. This one expressed thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is the point. There's one last thing. Because I, I can't skip it because it's Jesus' last sentence in this story. His summary statement for this whole story. Uh, part, part four, I think Jesus is just talking about trust, which I think is what, what he wants most. What he wants most from you and what he wants most to grow in you is trust in him. And this last sentence Jesus says as he kind of dismisses this guy is this. Then he said to him, rise and, rise and go, your, your what? Your faith has made you well. He said, no, 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 get up. Thank you, thank you, take off. Your faith has made you well. A synonym for faith is just trust. Do I trust him? Your trust has made you well. Now, hadn't the 10 had the faith to go see the priest even before their condition changed? I mean, hadn't all of their faith made all of them well? Hadn't 10 guys' faith made 10 guys well? Depends on what you mean by well. Nine guys went on their way. One guy fell on his knees. Nine guys were restored to their families, to their villages, and to their friends. One guy is in the process of being restored to God. Nine guys are in the process of getting back to their old lives. In this encounter with Jesus, this guy who came back, I think he's entering new life, not just getting back to his old life. This guy who came back made a connection about who Jesus was. As he comes back and crashes at Jesus' feet, I think he's saying, I know who you are. Back when in the description, this guy turning back and running back to Jesus, there were two expressions. It said, uh, it said, praising God and thanking Jesus. Praising God and thanking Jesus. This guy is connecting the two. He's saying, I believe that Almighty God is working in you. I believe that God is working right now, right here in you. I don't care what your enemies say. I don't care how your enemy group is going. I don't know what's going to happen to you, but I believe that you are the space where heaven and earth collide, where heaven and earth meet. I believe he's connecting the work of God with the work of Christ. 
Nine guys got back to their old life. I think this guy's entering new life. And when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, I think there's a sense in which this guy is becoming spiritually well, unlike the other nine guys who just got back to business. Jesus is on the border of Galilee and Samaria. Where's he going? A city. Where's he going? To Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there is the great temple where you would go offer sacrifices. This shows a picture of the temple courtyards. You see that fence there? You know what that fence was for? The fence is there to keep foreigners out, away, apart. That tallest building in back, that's where the sacrifices were offered. If you were a Roman, if you were an Egyptian, if you were a Samaritan, come up to the fence. But maybe you were an outsider and you couldn't go farther. In writing to Christians living in and around the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul would describe trusting in Jesus in these terms. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near because of Christ's sacrifice for us, been brought near through his blood. You who were far have been brought close. You realize what Paul is saying here. He says, listen, we were all outsiders. And Jesus came and Jesus lived and Jesus healed and Jesus died to make outsiders insiders. You see, you watch someone with somebody else and you can learn a lot about that person. But listen closely and you can learn what they desire, what they want from you and what they want for you, what they want to grow in you. And as we look at this encounter with the one thankful guy that came back, it seems to me that what Jesus values most is trust. I trust you. I am coming to believe that you, Jesus, are that place where heaven and earth meets. I believe that God the creator is active and at work in you in a unique way. I believe that you are the giver behind the gift. You are the giver behind the gift. There's something about that, the deeper we go into it, that should call out a, a thank you. <laughs> thank you. I recognize that you are the giver behind the gift, and I give thanks to you for all I have, and I give thanks to you for all I am becoming. That's this encounter with Jesus. I give thanks for all I have, and I give thanks for everything that you are recreating in me and in this new life. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and our other uh, campuses.
spaces as well. I get to pray for us as we move into our week. Pray with me. Gracious God, we give thanks. We give thanks that we have been here in each other's company and in your presence to absorb to absorb this encounter with you. And I ask for my brothers and sisters here that we would have a fresh encounter with you today. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the giver. Amen. Have a great week.